It's time for Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games Podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 180. I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. First off, Patreon. It's that time of the month again. It's All right. early July. We just celebrated Independence Day yesterday. How is it July? I don't know. What's going on with time? Yes. It's moving faster. I don't like it. Uh, so welcome, Justin. New Patreon. New patron. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Yeah, welcome. And uh, we appreciate you guys uh, back in the podcast. We really do. It, it means so much to us. Indeed. So we're going to get into 3D as we promised last episode. But first, there's more. First. <laughs> uh, I stumbled upon some cool information I wanted to share. Um, I believe her name is Donna. D-O-N-A. It could be Donna, but I've never heard that before. Let's go with Donna. All right. So uh, Donna Bailey is an American game programmer who, along with Ed Logg in 1981, created the arcade video game Centipede. And uh, another article I was reading, I don't see this on Wikipedia, but another article I was reading said that she is the world's first female arcade game programmer, which is super cool. That's cool. Centipede is like such a classic game. Oh, yeah. And uh, what was, I think it was a Gamma Sutra article. I'll put some links to this stuff in the show notes. Uh, but she was talking about how she actually plucked that one out of, because uh, they had a ton of concepts, right? And she was saying that that was the only one that wasn't basically boiled down to shoot stuff with lasers and it explodes. And she was like, oh, that one's got insects and it's different, right? And it's not so violent. So let's promote that one. And uh, that's why she made it. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Not so violent. Not so violent. Uh, I mean, that's kind of why we made Lunchbug, right? Like we were making (laughs) blood and gut games and some of the uh, people we were trying to sell licenses to were like, hey, our audience is kids or educational games or whatever. And so they were like, we want something, uh, you know, nonviolent, right? right? Well, and even we want something nonviolent ourselves sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Um, every once in a while, I just want to play some monkey ball, you know? Some monkey ball, yeah. It's just so delightful and harmless. Makes There's, you feel good. I think it's kind of like monkey ball, actually. I never played a, a whole lot of monkey ball, to be honest. But uh, shame. there's a game on. <laughs> shame. <laughs> We need we need the bell sound effect. I I got really into that game. I remember I played advanced mode on GameCube, and there were thirty levels, and uh, there's an achievement for beating them all uh, synchronously with without dying, which is just nuts, right? And I got to level twenty seven, and I died. But I only, I only died one time, which I uh, I thought was <laughs> quite an achievement. I thought I deserved an achievement. You know, there was no achievement for that, right? But what did you play that was similar? Uh, Marble Blast Ultra, I think. Oh, on what? Uh, XBLA. Hmm, nice. Yeah, I, I was really into that game for a long time. You were kind of, when XBLA was a thing, you were kind of uh, an advocate. You would promote XBLA games, you'd tell me about them, you'd be like, dude, buy it. Dude, yeah. Dude. I, uh, well, I think that it, when XBLA came out, I was like, you know, for me, that was it, the future of, of game distribution. <laughs> like, right? we're done. Like, Shut yeah. it down. This is the epitome <laughs> of gaming. <laughs> Nothing left to see here. I mean, I guess Steam had been doing it as well, but you know, at that point in time, I was a console gamer primarily, right? Um, and I, you know, not having to get up to change the disc, not having <laughs> to go buy a disc at the store, like you can just sit on your couch and like navigate to the store. You know, I don't want to use store. my muscles. That yeah. requires calorie burning. I only want to move my thumbs and maybe my eyeballs. Tops. And maybe. <laughs> I think the other thing for me, too, that made XBLA attractive was, like, the kinds of games that were there, you know? Like, I had had my fill of, like, Halo and Call of Duty and, like, all of those, like, AAA franchise games. Yeah. You know, like, XBLA was kind of this interesting ground where you had, like, 
you know, like the new ground stuff like Castle Crashers and you know Braid, Braid and Orange Box, Scapegoat. And, yeah. So it yeah. was like I don't know. XBLA felt, you know, a little more my speed because I, I not only do I like to make indie games, obviously, but I like to play indie <laughs> no. games. I think more. Yeah. Which you know is kind of counter to my hot obsession, but. Eh, you're allowed. You've got, like, I don't know. You don't play a whole lot of AAA stuff except for Blizzard, and Blizzard kind of owns your AAA Me? experience, which is <laughs> which is, uh, which is okay. You're forgiven. Actually, that's true. Yeah, they do kind of own my AAA experience. but uh, And because of that, I have very little room in my life for other AAA stuff. Yeah. I remember asking a buddy of mine about World of Warcraft, and he was like, look, I haven't tried it or anything because I just know it's the kind of game where you either play that or everything else, and I'm an everything else kind of guy because he likes to play pretty much every new major release you know like he's up to speed all the assassin's creed games like any any major franchise you've heard of he's like yeah of course i played that like it's what i do you know right so world of warcraft would <laughs> take away from that probably probably anywho it was a small tangent um what were we, oh i was going to talk about um some 3d stuff you were i'm excited to hear about this or were you done talking about the arcade programming stuff yeah i just wanted to bring it up uh there's an article i'll link to it as an interview and uh you know, I just think that uh, knowing a little bit more about the history and stuff like that is super cool. Yeah, that is cool. So, the third dimension. The third, the third dimension. <laughs> we need like a Twilight Zone or something. Oh, yeah, I'll add post sent. No, I won't. I won't do it. <laughs> you won't, you won't do no, that. Come on, that requires effort. <laughs> come on, let's, let's, let's come be on. honest. You know what we need? We need a soundboard, actually. Like. I know. I, re- I should ping the guys at Laser Time because they've got a soundboard. I don't know how they yeah. do it. And I know Brett, too, when he does uh, VG Empire, he will play the songs in a, such a way that the, the people there recording can hear it, but it yeah. also bleeds into the audio. Yeah. And I haven't found a way to do that that I don't kind of hate because <laughs> okay. it pollutes some, something or other. I think that you and I would, uh, we're not responsible enough to be given soundboard <laughs> because then that's the show true. would just turn into this you know, <laughs> one <laughs> hour long <laughs> episode of sound <laughs> effects. <laughs> okay, that's really, can you at least use a different sound? <laughs> 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 No, then the we, giggling be lots of giggling <laughs> that's probably true yeah you're probably right yes. good idea in theory so it's kind of like you know game development like we need <laughs> we only thrive when there are limitations like you can't use all the sound effects in the world because it's difficult dude yeah limitations <clears throat> anyways i could talk about that for a whole podcast but let's let's do 3d let's do it um just kind of start things off uh big caveat which is that uh, I still don't really know my 3D uh, rendering math and stuff very well. So this is like kind of just me talking about the experiences that I've had with, uh, you know, kind of being a traditional 2D programmer of games and kind of having to work out 3D stuff. From 2D to 3D and back right. again. <laughs> the story of Jeff Blair. A, a tiger hat's tail or something. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Yeah. That works. So put on your low polygon tiger hats and join us this is very low polygon it's about <laughs> as low polygon as you can get it's like two polygons per sprite yeah i guess the lowest you could get what pyramid is that right i guess so i mean yeah you could you could just render a, a one, one triangle let's do it let's let's render that one triangle and talk about it for an hour until you guys right so uh as we mentioned a couple podcasts or last podcast ago um contract work is a thing yeah, um, that, ex- that so, exists. <laughs> what's that? That exists. That exists. Um, <laughs> but as part of that, you know, um, what's interesting about doing that kind of stuff is that it gets you out of your comfort zone, right? Yeah. Like, 
not always, but you know, sometimes, you know, you are working in a technology stack of someone else's that has, you know, whatever kinds of differences to your own and, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and in this particular instance, you know, uh, I'm working in something that's a little bit lower level, right? There is no, there is no canvas API for graphics drawing. What? 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 There, there is only uh, an OpenGL abstraction. Well, not even an abstraction, sorry. OpenGL API. OpenGL uh, ES2, to be exact. You just plug straight into it. Yeah, just jack, jack right in. It's like the <laughs> Matrix. Nice. Um, but anyways, like, uh, it, it's, it's very similar to, as I've learned, WebGL, because WebGL is actually also based upon OpenGL ES2. Um, and so I think it's embedded systems, maybe, the ES part. Anyways, I, I think <laughs> that for uh, iPhone and Android, OpenGL ES2 is like the thing. Uh, there might be some newer versions and whatnot, but I did learn that there are a whole bunch of different versions of OpenGL. Yeah, I've heard uh, that before, and and you know, I have an, an idea of what's what in that space now. Nice. Um, yeah, and so it's really interesting, actually, and I like that I'm, I'm being able to learn the OpenGL ES stuff because um, it does have a lot of overlap with WebGL. So I'm kind of hoping that uh, this knowledge will be able to transfer pretty easily into WebGL, which you know I kind of think seems like the direction for the browser, you know, like the canvas API is nice, but it doesn't seem like it has the same like forward momentum as WebGL. You think it's kind of slowed down? I think so. I, well, it's, you know, it's necessarily simpler and yeah. can do less, less flexible. And, and so it kind of feels like, you know, most of the momentum is like making WebGL fast and doing all the kinds of crazy things you can do in 3D. And if you even look at like 2D projects like Pixie.js, which is kind of like, they have a WebGL renderer and a canvas renderer, but the way that they can implement like filtering and, and different things using shaders uh, in 3D and WebGL is like one much cooler looking <laughs> and easier and faster. So everything you need that, that you could accomplish in Canvas, probably. I mean, I'm sure you could accomplish the same visual effects in Canvas. It would just be dog slow. Right. Well, yeah. here's a question: Is there anything that Canvas can do that WebGL can't? text what webgl doesn't do text no so what do you well, do OpenGL doesn't do text either okay so on the web side do you just use a div and throw some text in there or what uh you could do it a couple different ways yeah like one way to do it would be to have a div overlaying your because webgl still uses a canvas it still uses the canvas element okay it just instead of saying like there's a 3d context there's a 3d context yeah and S uh <laughs> that's really weird that it doesn't render text what what do you use when you don't have because you don't have the browser with the stack that you're working on right so right, they have their own implementation of text somehow basically yeah it's like there is a um a, a little extension method that was written that basically writes a string of text to an OpenGL texture and returns that texture handle to you okay and then you can then draw that texture using whatever so I'm going to try and explain all these little concepts. Um, one, it's helpful for me because then I get to kind of reinforce my own knowledge. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully some astute LostCast listeners will call me out on my uh, errors. Oh, that's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yes. Jeff, uh, Jeff, here's the reasons you're wrong. Prepare to read a lot. <laughs> and you get some like kind of spill off, you know, uh, I guess knowledge or something. Hey, most of my game programming knowledge has come from your spill off. <laughs> I just scoop up the uh, well, I scoop up whatever's left over, and I 
Wow. Kind of a gross. And I'm picturing like scooping out your brain into like my own ice cream cone and then eating your brain like a cannibal. I was picturing like, you know, there's this little <laughs> parasite and it's like eating the stuff that's mm. like dripping out of my ears from my brain. Yeah, I felt a lot like a parasite for these last uh, many years <laughs> in many ways. We're either leeching off of other companies with contracts or we're like, please back us on Kickstarter and Patreon. <laughs> so I, I feel very uh, parasitic like Bottom feederish. Uh, yeah, I it's do. It's interesting. That's like, you know, reminds me of the Jeff Vogel blog, the bottom feeder. Yeah, he's uh he's so comfortable in his skin, I feel. He, he owns He's that, like though, right? yeah, he's like I'm a catfish. I just I live in the bottom and I'm like, you know, you you put me in a tank and I just <laughs> put my mouth on the side of the glass and I'm like <laughs> he just seeks out the like, you know, kind of like story-based RPG niche audience and is like, "Yes." Yeah, I'm like we're not even that. We're more like, "What's our niche? What type of garbage should we eat?" <laughs> <laughs> we're eating the uh the garbage the bottom feeders don't get. Wow. Ah. <sighs> I think we're like <laughs> we're like the uh, the little weird like crustaceans or something or I don't know crustaceans but like little things that are like barnacles that attach to the bottom <laughs> feeders <laughs> and they like clean the muck off the skin of the fish or whatever. Barnacle games should have been us. That should have been man. Uh, Deprecast right here. I know, right? <clears throat> Anyways, yeah, 3D. Moving on. So uh, I think it's interesting because <sighs> 3D like it posed such a kind of like conceptual problem for me uh and and it's really just because i hadn't sat down and like looked at and understood the concepts behind it i kept you know i would look at it and be like ah this is too much like this is too confusing like i don't want to deal with that like i'm just going to stay in the world of canvas because it's comfortable and warm and (laughs) etc etc yeah like at least uh, you're you're competent in canvas 2d api right Right. like I, i i feel good here i go somewhere else and you feel insecure I think one of the biggest hurdles uh, was kind of just getting over the initial like complication uh, of like the rendering pipeline, right? Because I'm sure you've heard of shaders. What? What? You're talking I, about sunglasses? Yeah. That's a or cool like, name. for Yeah. A pair of, a pair of shades. You put up in your car. <laughs> yeah. They, so, you know, I got a big tiger head on this time because I'm not a 3D programmer and I, I have never... Actually, I think I did make a shader once, but I was just like, hello world, run away. <laughs> You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but yeah, based on what I've seen uh, right. about them, they're like, they're helpful with, you know, rendering 3D and they can do anything shaders can. That's that's my understanding. Yeah, that's, that's probably pretty true. I, I like that. Like, I think I wrote a shader once. I think so. <laughs> that that might have happened. I feel like that needs to be like a bumper sticker or something. It could be a thing. Well, I at least played with, uh, I played with some 3GS and I, I kicked around the tires and I made, of course, a little turn-based first person, not an RPG, but like a on-rails walk around. <laughs> what is type? a 3GS? Type dealy. Uh, 3JS? You don't know 3GS? Oh, 3JS. Sorry. I thought I said or, 3GS. Oh, maybe I did. 3G. Yeah, 3JS. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, and I'm pretty uh, sure when I was in there, I experimented with like some of the things that you know were itchy to me. I was like, I want to know more about a 3D camera. I want to know more about shaders because I keep hearing about those. And I want to create just like some cubes, you know, almost like Minecraft style, just to like create a little world without you know, having to bust open a 3D editor and, like, make the world's worst-looking barrel or something, right? I wanted, you know, really primitive shapes. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I accomplished everything I wanted to, but it was a while ago, and I did not have, you know, deep understanding about what I was doing. I was more like, shader.doit. It worked. That kind of thing. Shader.doit. So you are using shaders? I am, and I've, I've written a few very, very simple shaders with much help from the internet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> much my help. Good, my good friend Google. What did we ever do before the internet, man? 
Uh, I think this is why I never got very far in game programming before, you know, the rampant rise of information. Yeah. Um, just because, yeah, it's hard, hard problems. And, like, you know, some people are, like, really good at, I don't know what to, what to call it, but, you know, <laughs> like, they, they can move forward maybe slowly without, you know, seeing some examples. But yeah. I guess, you know, I've kind of grown up in an era where, you know, the internet was available, like, you know, before between the time I was a, like 10 and 15, you know, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Like 12 or something. So, you know, when I was really into that stuff, um, I've always had like some sort of access to information, I guess. Yeah. I think that really learning with programming, you need more than one access, right? Like just the documentation is never enough, you know, because the documentation might not really be speaking your language sometimes, you know, like it just doesn't click with you. You're like, I expect, why aren't the parameters listed out? Like what types those are? Why aren't the return values listed out or something why is it impossible to search is a common thing you know i usually need the documentation is like my fallback first and foremost i need an example right and a lot of times that's just like a little snippet which has no context and you can't actually execute right and then other times there's like uh full working examples where you can actually run it and you can see everything working and that's the best case scenario right because then you can actually change something and you know if what you expected to happen happens then you're like yay i've learned something (laughs) But yeah, I usually need those. And like, I guess the ultimate one would be someone who knows what they're talking about that you can bounce questions off of, right? And if you've got like all, what is that, like four different types of learning, then you can do it for sure, you know? Right. But a lot of times, you know, certain ones aren't available to you. Like the biggest one probably is you don't have someone who you can just, you know, bounce a question off of. And then other times, you know, you just get that snippet or you just get the docs. And then, yeah, for me, I just have blind spots then. And it's hard. It is. It's hard to move forward. Yeah. So like Stack Overflow and stuff fills a lot of those gaps now. You know, back yeah. when we first started programming, there wasn't even that. It was like maybe you found a page on the internet with some guy who wrote a QBasic game and posted the Bass file or something. That was it. Yeah. And most of the time, um, it was a lot like today, you know, where people are kind of guarded with their source code in general. You know, I mean, GitHub has created the internet uh, of openness, right? Where you can like, it's pretty common. You see a project and it's like, yeah, it's right here in GitHub. The source is available to you. But yeah, back then um, with QBasic 4.5, you could kind of, you know, compile sort of your game. At least it was obfuscation. I don't remember exactly how that works, but you didn't have to give people the source code if you didn't want to for certain versions of basic, right? Right, yeah. And so a lot of times people didn't because they were like, you know, no, why, why would I? You'd, you'd steal it and put your own name in it. And we're like, probably people would. No, I'm sure they would. Yeah. Anyway. Especially in that era. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so back to the 3D stuff. Uh, a lot of what I learned actually is based upon uh a site called webglfundamentals.org which i think we linked to in the last podcast or at least i mentioned at the end of the last podcast i will link to it again but it's a really interesting uh place to start and it's really good if you're like me where you have a good grasp of kind of like the web browser and stuff in general and like you're just looking to you know move up the ladder i guess with regards to uh learning the new apis and stuff yeah so uh, that's a good place to start. One of the things that, you know, is daunting uh, about the 3D stuff, right, is that before you can do anything in, in this 3D stuff is you have to create two shaders. And you have to compile those sh- those two shaders into a program. And then whenever you render anything, you have to tell WebGL or OpenGL that you want to use that program. And so you can have a whole bit, uh, bunch of different kinds of programs that you can use in different scenarios. So for example, like uh, I have a program that renders primitive shapes, like triangles, quads, whatever, S- several triangles, <laughs> mostly just triangles. But, uh, but the, the way that it renders it and 
colors it, you know, is just simple shapes of simple colors. Um, and then I have a separate uh, set of shaders, one, uh, two different shaders that uh, are compiled into a program that does like sprites, right? So basically it's the same set of ideas, except for instead of drawing a solid color, you're drawing, you know, something from an image. And the way that the shader is written to do that is just a little bit different, right? You have to like pass in some texture coordinates and then move them around and stuff. Hmm. And there's two primary shaders uh, that you use. One's called the vertex shader and one is called the fragment shader. And the vertex shader is around positioning. It's basically saying like, based on, you know, some coordinates, where should this thing be drawn on the screen? And that's where a lot of like your 3D transformation and, and just really any transformation in general can happen, uh, or it can at least be applied mathematically. Um, and so basically like what a shader does is it's just a little snippet of program that runs for each vertex in, I guess, the geometry that you have. So like the way that web or OpenGL in general works is that uh, this is something that, that kind of helped me get my head around it is that it's like, it's sort of stateful. Like when you call these OpenGL and WebGL APIs, like you're affecting the internal state of OpenGL at that point in time. Hmm. Right. So you would say like OpenGL use program, whatever. And then you'd say like OpenGL uh, buffer some basically geometry points into a buffer. Right. Yeah. And then you would say, like, you know, there's some other uh, methods that basically tell the program how to access certain variables and how to, you know, what to bind them to. Because, like, you might, when you have a shader, your shader can accept essentially parameters, right? right. Or arguments. And so when you want to use that shader in practice, you have to, like, bind data to those arguments. Um, and it's not like, you know, a function call where you're like, you know, shader dot do it pass in foo barbaz right like that's our second reference so far to shader dot do it <laughs> yes awesome um it's more like open gel use this shader open gel you know that variable that's in this shader called blah you should bind this uh vector two to that memory location okay hey, open gel you know this uh matrix variable in the shader you should bind this matrix object that i have to that variable so instead of passing them in as arguments to a function, you bind them, like you bind what yeah. you need. Yeah, that's actually kind of mm. like one of the big concepts in OpenGL for me is binding stuff, right? Like at any yeah. given time, that's why I said it's like kind of like a stateful API is that at any given time, like there's a bound texture perhaps or not. There's bound arrays there or uh, buffers. Um, there's mm. like, you know, Essentially, you could you could uh, the API is called use program, but you could essentially call it the same thing. You're binding a program that mm -hmm. OpenGL is using, and so once you you go through all those steps, and at the very end, you're like OpenGL draw arrays or draw whatever, and and really that's when it takes all that state and all those bindings that you have done up until then, and says, great, I'm going to draw these triangles using all of this setup, and then it does it right, and then you have you know here's a triangle on the screen. <laughs> so wait do you need two shaders to draw a single triangle yes why because one shader uh figures out where the positions of the vertices are and then the other shader determines what color it is okay yeah 
Hmm. So the vertex shader is positioning, and then the fragment shader is like coloring and texturing. Man, yeah, that is a a whole lot of stuff. Because you know, comparatively, if you wanted to draw a triangle in, you know, the two D canvas API, you could probably accomplish that with like what three lines, four like, lines. <laughs> you canvas know, canvas move to zero zero. Canvas yeah. line to. 100 100 move around two yeah stroke or fill uh we're done here yeah that's it like you can do it <laughs> like i guess four api calls right like yeah. a move a line a line a line and a fill or something yeah wow but for uh the webgl equivalents it sounds like you need a small book you do, it, you do <laughs> right and that's why it's like it's, it's sort of intimidating to get into but yeah um it's really powerful and like you can kind of see like once you've kind of you know, I've written just a, a couple very basic shaders that we were talking about before, but now that I kind of understand how shaders work, like I can sort of see how powerful that they are, you know? Yeah. Like I'm not the point where I could write any kind of fancy shader that would do crazy stuff, but I'm starting to understand what could be done and like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like all you'd have to do is do this fancy, crazy math inside the shader and, you know, the result will be this crazy thing, right? Yeah. Um, I was kind of talking to you, I think, the other day off cast about how I had written a bug. How could I was, you? So, so I was writing like some transformation code. Yeah. And I had written a bug. And it, really what I wanted was I wanted this triangle that I was rendering to rotate uh, kind of like, if you picture like a 2D rectangle, just rotating yeah. uh, you know, in front of you. It's right. like kind of rotating around like a wheel almost. That's what I was trying to do. But I had messed up the math. And what ended up happening was that the square was rotating almost in 3D space. Like it was rotating on, so it was like facing away from me, facing towards me, facing away, facing yeah. towards, that kind of a thing. Yeah. And it's probably hard to picture on the cast, but, you know. So I would use Paper Mario if you've played those games. Um, I'm not sure if all of them do, but I know some of the more recent ones have had 3D environments, right? But the characters in the game, like Mario, they are billboards, essentially, right? Right. They're just 2D sprites, and <clears throat> they play with that a lot. Like, they emphasize the fact that you're 2D, and you're almost like a sheet of paper in a 3D world, right? But most of the time, you see Mario straight from the side. But when you turn, like, say, from the left to the right, instead of what usually happens in these types of games is um, you just flip the image, and you don't ever see any animation. Some games, like um, Spelunky or Super Metroid, they might have, like, an animation frame that shows you, you know, the character looking at the camera when they turn from left to right or something, right? And what you're talking about is you got this 2D billboard and you rotate it in such a way that the whole image kind of flips around, right? So if you're looking at a piece of paper, imagine just spinning it in your hands so that now you're looking at the backside of it. Right. So yeah, pretty confusing, but really all it is is you're looking you're you're manipulating a different axis, right? Right, exactly. And I, I think that like, you know, one of the things that was really important with that article or a set of articles called on, on WebGL Fundamentals was that he keeps harping on the fact that WebGL is a 2D rasterization API. Hmm. Like there is no inherent 3D-ness to WebGL or OpenGL, right? Like they just give you the tools to do the math that will make things appear as if they were three dimensions, right? Because basically once you have these triangles and you have, uh, or these vertexes, like you have these, like e each vertex has like an X, Y, Z in, in 3D, right? Yeah. And the math that you do on those will determine how they get rendered uh, in a perspective on, on this 2D canvas, right? Yeah. Because like, as we mentioned before, the WebGL API uh, is really just, it's operating on the exact same canvas DOM element, which is 2D because it's on your screen, which is 2D. Right. And so at, at the bare bones level, like 
this API is meant for rendering things on a two-dimensional plane. And so that's kind of what it does. And all of the 3D stuff is just extra math. To back up the rendering. To back up the rendering, right. Um, so it's interesting, like the uh, the shaders have a lot of like built-in types and stuff. Like um, there's all kinds of like matrices and vectors and like all those constructs um, just kind of exist by default uh, within the shader language. And so the shader language is actually a separate language from like JavaScript or C or whatever you're writing in. Like the shader has its own language. Interesting. Yeah, and I think it's called GLSL, GL shader language. And it's at least C syntax, yes? Um, sort of, yeah. What would, I mean, <laughs> geez, what would you compare it to? Uh, it's pretty simple, honestly. I mean, it's sort of C syntax, right? Like you, basically when you write a shader, it has to have a main function. And so, like, you know, you can picture, like, uh, writing a shader, like, just writing a very small program that has an entry point called main, right? And so oh, you yeah. just, you create this main function, and the way you do that is you just say, like, main parentheses, and then, you know, drop down to a line. And then, so, like, for example, like, the very, the very simplest, most simple uh, vertex shader you might have would be, like, main, and then it would say gl position is equal to, like, vector for some numbers. Yeah. Uh, and so GL position, this is another thing that, that really helped me, was GL position is a special shader variable that you set to export the position of that vertex. Hmm. So basically, all your shader is doing is it says, like, take it gets all these arguments, and you do whatever math you want to do inside your shader. Anything you want to do. Any mathematical, add, subtract, multiply, transform, matrix, whatever you want to do. And then at the very end, you just set GL position equal to a vector that describes where that vertex is in world space or whatever. Uh, or I guess in draw, in clip space, sorry, in clip space. What? Uh, and then that is really what, you know, like web or OpenGL, it doesn't really care, I guess, you know, what happens in your shader other than like, hey, did you end up with a uh, vector that describes where I should draw this thing? Right. Yes, great. We're, like, we're done here. That's all I need. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I made a brief mention to clip space real quick, and, and I'll talk about that for a second. Yeah, explain that. So clip space is basically like everything in WebGL or OpenGL is drawn from negative one to positive one. Like there aren't any, it's not like a coordinate system by default, like say Canvas, right? Right. So in Canvas, if you wanted to draw a rectangle, you would say like fill rect zero zero for 100, 100, width and height to 100, 100. And that would give you a rectangle that's 100 by 100, right? Uh, by default in OpenGL and WebGL, when you describe a vector, it's described as being in clip space, which is really just a term for where it appears uh, on the OpenGL surface, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where negative one is the far left and positive one is the far right. And then on the y-axis, the same thing, except for by default in OpenGL and WebGL, um, the lower left is zero, zero. I think, or maybe no, maybe it's zero to one in the clip space. Sorry, maybe it's not negative one to positive one. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. I think it's hmm. zero, zero to one um, on each axis, but starting in the lower left. Well, you're probably right about one of those. Not That's both. Right. <laughs> not both, yes. <laughs> Anyways, well, the point is, you know, the point is similar, is that there is a, basically, it's like a normal, normalized range. Okay. Right? And so, like, you know, we talked about normals on the podcast before. It's like a, a number between zero and one that represents... So useful. I use those all the time. I was using them this morning. Yeah. So so if you think about it in terms of, like, the screen, right, 
one is the far extent of the screen and zero is the other extent of the screen, right? So you don't really deal with like the resolution in terms of like pixels or whatever. You know, if you had a triangle that was one wide and one tall, you know, that would be filling up the entire screen. Gotcha. And then it could be like 0.5, which would be half the screen or something. Yeah. But what you can do is you can, you know, in your math, if you want, so this is one thing I did, right, is that I wanted my coordinates to be specified, like, in, like, almost like a resolution of the screen. Yeah. So the first thing you can do there is that you can basically just, uh, in you pass into your shader the resolution of your screen and the coordinates of your thing, right? So like if your rectangle, if you want a rectangle to be from 0, 0 to 100, 100, right? That's not clip space. That's like pixel space almost. Hmm. And uh, you can transform that, right? Like if you know the width and height of your screen, you can say, okay, my screen's 800 by 600. So the actual position of this thing is going to be like 100 divided by the size of the screen, which is 800, right? Hmm. Which would give you like whatever it is. Right. And then that's the coordinates that you then, then you return to GL position or, you know, you set GL position to be those coordinates based on, you know, it's now a normal of the position over the entire screen size, screen width or whatever. Right. Hmm. So it's, it's pretty interesting to think about it uh, that way. I'm sure it's not as easy to understand when I'm talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) This should be a video show. Yeah, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Vidcast. Yeah. Lost vid. Lost vid. Yeah, anyways. So, uh, and then the uh, the fragment shader, which we talked about just a few minutes ago, is very similar in which you export, um, I think it's called GL Color or something, Mm -hmm. um, which is really just a color right it's like hey what color is this pixel right and when it's a simple like primitive with just like a flat color on it kind of shader you can just really set it to any color you want like an rgb value like you could say you know uh and and you could pass it as a parameter to the shader so you could say like the color for this triangle is going to be green which is like you know zero two fifty five zero although i think you know, WebGL also just the colors, the RGB values are also normal. So it's like zero to one, one being 255, and zero being zero, obviously. Yeah, those throw me off sometimes because uh, the 2D Canvas API, the RGBA is between zero and one. But then other libraries, it's between zero and 255. But, uh, uh, you know, it's just a quick <clears throat> quick multiplier divide to fix that. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, Convert. Right, exactly. It, it's, it's no ideal. It's just thinking about like, okay, is it between zero and 255 or zero and one? Yeah. Which, you know, I, is another reason I like normals, right? Is that it doesn't really matter what the arbitrary scale is. Like, is it between 0 and 255? Like, who cares? Like, if you can express it between 0 and 1, you can extrapolate any other range from that. Oh, yeah, or a percentage. I'm sure some people don't use normals at all. They just use percentages, which accomplishes the same goal. I was say, like, that, it's basically the same thing, right? Yeah. Like, multiply by 100. There you go. That's your percentage. Right. And and honestly, like who even expresses percentages in whole numbers in computers or math? Like almost every percentage I've ever seen expressed in a computer program has always been in the decimal form. Yeah. Hmm. Which is as normal, right? Right. It's like a normal of 100. 
Yeah, I think that your your first entry point when when working with certain types of numbers might be where you kind of get situated, you know, because I remember um, in school they would teach us degrees, right? Right. Uh, up to 360 degrees. And when you're dealing with like game programming, most of the time you don't care about degrees. You want to deal with radians. Yeah, I'm always like sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say judgmental, but you know, as a programmer, <laughs> like you have certain things that you do. And then when people don't do it your way, you're like, I don't like this, whatever. Yeah. But uh, every time I come across someone who, you know, is showing examples of stuff and they're doing like degrees to radians calculations in their code i'm like why just use radians to begin with like why yeah. why overcomplicate things by having extra math just so you can express things as 180 degrees which i i don't know i think that we've been working with radians long enough now where like i prefer them to degrees anyway like i yeah i do too i think in radians now in terms of yeah. like circular math that's what it was that's all it was it was just school school taught you degrees and then the math really needed to be radians, and there you go. And I, uh, yeah, basically, I've uh, come to the point where I, I aggressively don't like degrees. Get them out of here. You know, like I'll convert them if I have to, right? Like I'll have a little quick conversion or something, but ideally, they don't exist anywhere in the code. Um. Anyway, so like slight tangent about about the unlost cast. No, never, never. Yeah. Uh, where was I? I lost my train boss, I thought. <laughs> the train boss has defeated you. It did a, right. uh, a save and suplex. <laughs> uh, okay, what were you talking about last? Shaders? Oh, fragments. Oh, fragments. Yeah, so anyways, like, uh, for the, like, the fragment shader, you know, like we talked about the vertex shader, all you're really doing is you're telling the program, like, hey, I did a bunch of math, and here's where the resulting position is. Really, it, like it's it's really just a custom function that returns the location uh, of where you want to draw, right? Like that's it. So inside that function, you can do anything that you want to transform those coordinates. And then uh, in the fragment shader, you can do the same thing. You can do anything you want to return a color that is the color that should be rasterized uh, at that point. And so. One way to do it is just by explicitly stating like, okay, here's an RGB value that is green or whatever, or here's a parameter to this uh, shader. And so like in the example, like I was making a sort of like a, a stubbed out canvas API on top of the GL functions, right? To like give myself the ability to say things like fill rect very mm -hmm. easily. And you know, the way that you do that, right? Is that you have this program, this little shader program that I uh, created that, does that and one of the parameters of the fragment shader is like what's the color and so when i invoke that program like we talked about earlier i bind the color that i want to that shader variable and then when the shader execute it just says eh, gl color equals i think it's called gl frag color uh equals you know red or green or blue or whatever the the variable happens to be you know it just says gl frag color is equal to color variable yeah um so it's it's really easy and and the other thing you can do right is that there are ways that you can grab the color of a pixel from a texture right so when you think about texture rendering the way that you might think about it in your head in canvas right is that you kind of have like this uh bitmap data in memory and you just kind of walk over it and you're like okay starting at zero zero i'm going to copy each pixel over to the destination right and it kind of works similarly except for 
the shader just wants a color and it doesn't really care where you get that color from. And so you can get that color from a texture, right? Hmm. You can look up a texture at some coordinates and say, here's the color for this, uh, you know, this fragment and it's coming from coordinate, you know, whatever, whatever in this texture, which is really just like an image of whatever. It could be like Raga or whatever. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So like when you're rendering stuff with the fragment or when you're coloring stuff with the fragment shader, it only cares about the color and it doesn't really care where you got that color from or what you did to that color afterwards. I mean, so for example, like you could do filters that would say like, I'm going to get the original pixel color from this texture and then I'm going to grayscale it and then I'm going to send a return it to geofrag color mm. and then you'd have a grayscale or sepia mm. or really anything right mm, that'd be nice yeah we can't really afford to do that with our current setup right it's just too slow it's too slow because it has to be done in so many operations right like that's the really powerful thing about OpenGL and the, the shader pipeline in general right is that like for us in canvas it looks something like, okay, first uh, load this image data and then draw it to this canvas, which is an operation that you know starts in the upper left and goes to width and height to the sprite and draws the pixels where they're supposed to be. Then you have to come back over that and say, you know, draw again with some compositing operation or something. Or even worse, if you're doing something really custom with canvas, you have to like get the pixel data from the canvas context which is like hugely expensive yep uh when i was trying that stuff i found that getting the pixel data was the most non-performant aspect not even iterating through it no wow i would think that would be because basically it just gives you back this huge array right and it's just like uh, it's linear it's it's a just a bunch of values and there uh i think there's four values rgb and the a Right. right, and it's your job if you want to go get the X and the Y, you need to convert to index that kind of stuff. It's like it's not very helpful. It's very low level data, right? It is very low level data, and it's slow to access. And that's weird because the do, data it's right there. You should be able to fetch it. I would think in an optimized way, but I think the problem is, is you're crossing that bridge, right? You're crossing that bridge mm. between JavaScript and native code that has to convert whatever native representation of yeah. that pixel data exists into something that JavaScript to work with, like a JavaScript array, right? But yeah. basically what you say when you say get image data is you say, you know, hey, native code, give me a JavaScript array that represents this pixel data. I hope that the method is actually called that. Hey, hey. dot native code, <laughs> pass in a parameter. <laughs> it works. Uh, yes. Ship it. So yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting um, performance thing right there. Hmm. But uh Putting it doesn't seem to be putting the image data back doesn't seem to be as big of an issue. Nice, for whatever reason. Um, I don't really understand how those things work exactly, but you know, it also is depending on the size of your image. Like looping over it can be pretty expensive too, right? Because yeah. essentially, if you have you know four entries for each thing, if you have like a thousand by a thousand times four, you know, that's like four million, right? array entries you have an array that's like four million entries long yeah that's that's pretty massive yeah <clears throat> and granted like you don't have to loop over each one because the math you would do would be more like loop over the width and the height and then you know start the offset of your index at x y times four or whatever 
Yeah, I think the last time I messed with that stuff, I made this quick little web app where I could drag an image into it and it would tell me how many colors it had. Huh. It was very easy to program. Yeah. Anyways, so the point is, is that like what would be several actions and several like boundary crossing JavaScript to native API calls um, are something you can just do in the course of one shader in, hmm. in GL, right? No big deal. Does sound nice. Yeah. And you could do like several things at once, right? Like in that same shader, in that same function, you know, you could grayscale, you could distort, you could do all kinds of math that will change the positioning and the colors of the triangles that you're drawing. Um, and, and it all happens like in a very, you know, tight loop, I guess. You know, you don't have to make these multiple passes. Right. That's not to say that like, you know, <laughs> you could write the world's biggest shader and it'd be super performant. I'm sure that there are limits to, <laughs> you know, you know, if you're, you know, I think there are like conditionals and loops in the shader language and like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's an area where you can get into trouble. I wonder how much of your game logic you could just stick in your shaders. <laughs> you just outsource it all. You're like, really, my JavaScript program just kind of like it just connects some shaders, shaders and yeah. that's all that it does. <laughs> After that, it just leaves. Like, all right, I've done my job. I feel like you could, although I think I would feel the same way about it that I would feel about like people that abuse CSS. <laughs> you know, like people that have written entire games in CSS. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's great and all, but like, Holy God, is this a mess? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, some people feel that way about our games, right? Why, why God's name would you write a game in JavaScript kind of thing? It's like, yeah, why are you making it harder on yourself? Why would anybody um, make a game QBasic? Why would people use Python? I don't know. People, it's true. Sometimes there is no other option when it come right when it comes right down to it, right? Like, we probably wouldn't be in the games industry if it wasn't for being able to use JavaScript, right? Perhaps. But I mean, like, I th I think it's fine to experiment. Obviously, like, oh, I'm yeah. not saying anyone should not do that. But uh, you know, if you're going to write a serious application, like, you're probably not going <laughs> to write it your game logic in the uh, in the shader. I'm sure someone is doing it. <laughs> I'm sure someone is too. <laughs> but by and large, like, you know, in proper usage, you should think of your shaders as like a very specific tool. Like, yeah. they exist to transform uh, positional data and to colorize pixels. Right, like that's the purpose of the two shaders. It's like where is it drawn and what color is it, and yeah. how you get to those two fundamental concepts in your shader is completely up to you. Nice. So, uh, as I was kind of talking about before, like you know, when I was writing these very primitive shaders, um, you know, one thing I did was that I converted what I would consider my world space or canvas space or whatever to clip space, right, which is the normalized value. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is I, I flipped the y-axis, right? So it was a very easy in my shader. I just say, you know, flip the y-axis. And now all of a sudden I've got a two-dimensional drawing surface where zero, zero is the upper left instead of the lower left. Hmm. Very nice. Yeah. And, it's, and so because everything funnels through that shader, like you don't have to do anything else, right? You can express everything in your program as assuming that zero, zero is the upper left and it all gets funneled through that shader. And the shader just, you know, says invert the y and like bam you're done nice i like that yeah easy peasy yeah so it's 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 a little harder to get started with for sure and obviously like uh i'm not a complete expert quite yet but it's uh it's been a really interesting learning experience for me and i'm kind of at the point you know where like i feel like okay like i've got some of the fundamentals down i've been able to do like a few more advanced things and uh i'm really kind of excited to see uh, what more I can do with shaders because 
Um, I definitely, you know, I feel like I'm very advanced with the Canvas API and, you know, not that you can't do certain stuff with that, but like we were talking about earlier, like the performance implications of certain things are just yeah too I mean, massive. You could do whatever kind of demos you want. You could make something pretty cool in Canvas, but then, you know, okay, can we bake that into Soul Thief, right? That's yeah. where it's like, okay, that's going to be performance bottleneck probably. And it's just, uh, you need to have real world applications of this stuff, right? Yeah. So anyways, yeah, that's kind of just been my uh, my experience lately working on like the 3D, 3D stuff. So hmm. it's been really interesting and I'm, I'm glad that I had the chance to, you know, basically increase my knowledge. That's cool, man. Yeah. I've got kind of two separate schools of thought. One being that, so we talked about earlier, like WebGL can pretty much do anything the, the 2D Canvas API can do, right? And a whole lot more. And therefore, it's almost like a better tool in some regards. Right. So for that reason, I think you're right. It has more more momentum and it's just a better thing to use because in a lot of situations, right? Because you might want to go from 2D to 3D or you've always got the option, you know? Uh, but the other school of thought is that a lot of people will go with what's easiest, you know? Yeah. And Canvas, 2D Canvas is just way easier, right? Like probably an order of magnitude easier than setting up WebGL, that kind oh, of thing. Oh, God, yes. So it's an interesting thing because I like there's not necessarily one that's just going to dominate, I don't feel. No, I think that uh, it's just kind of like, you know, Canvas should never go away, I think, because it's, you know, and, and obviously in my case, like, it was something that was able to get me into that space more quickly and more easily. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know, it's probably a weird analogy, but like, you know, you move into a small house and you then start accumulating furniture and like the small house is fine at first and it's simple and easy, but then you accumulate furniture and children and pets and stuff. And then you have to upgrade <laughs> to the bigger house. Yeah. Right? You need that third dimension. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah, fit yeah. a lot more things in the third dimension. It was two D house. Yeah, exactly. So I think that like you know they both have their place, right? The Canvas API is great for introductory stuff, and like honestly, like not even introductory because we've made commercial games with it that are completely fine. Yeah. Um. And so, but you know there there are certain things that like we have trouble doing now, or at least are sort of prohibitive, uh, performance wise, in that environment that we could you know fix by you know, making the jump up to something like WebGL. Maybe to further your analogy, I want a pet alligator. <laughs> and I can't fit that in this tiny house because it'll just eat everything. Right. It just can't get its own space. <laughs> you need to upgrade to a house with like a built-in swamp in the backyard. Ooh, that sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Nice. So uh, I think normally we would probably call that the cast because uh, we're about we're about done. We're about 50 minutes in, but uh, we've been missing some, uh, we missed a show recently, so uh, let's do one more thing. All right, let's do it. A little more content. So this is, uh, one thing I like to do is I just go to Gama Sutra and read some stuff, and then, you know, it's fun just to pick an article we can talk about. And uh, here's one that's delightful. Four signs that your game is doomed. Oh, no. So we're going to end on a, on a, I don't know, maybe a down note here, but uh, it's kind of fun. So, so I'm <laughs> guessing, I'm, I'm going to... <laughs> Having not read this article, I'm going to guess we hit at least three or four of the points. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I might argue more. <laughs> <laughs> more than four? All four, perhaps. Oh, all four. Okay. So here they are. Uh, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. You should def definitely check it out because it's good stuff. So uh, number one, core concept not set. Does that ring a bell? No. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> Should ring the loudest bell. That would be along the lines of like with a wizard lizard two and the uh, the tongue yes. mechanic and just like oh god and you know later on we're switching stuff also the uh, the death mechanic and then switching that to the possession mechanic like the core concept was certainly not set while we were like full into production right oh yeah that's a problem uh, number two flip flopping <laughs> there's permanent video evidence of of our flip flopping on YouTube with regards to our alpha videos we were doing for a while that's a good thing we're not politicians that's right (laughs) you guys said you were making a twin stick shooter like yeah but you know (laughs) yeah but you know it didn't work out flippity flopperson yeah and that's also a red flag right because you know i think most indie most companies right most game companies would probably do that stuff behind the curtain like you don't want to yell from the rooftops necessarily like hey we don't know what this game is yet we're trying to figure it out as we're being open about it So that's kind of a problem. Flip-flopping, definitely guilty of that. Uh, three, I don't know, this one's harder. Mismanaged team. <laughs> it's weird for us because we've never had, like, there's never really been one person in charge. Like That, if, I think, <laughs> is the definition of that mismanaged. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. But it was, you know, neither one of us was ever like, look, it's going to be my way or the highway. You yeah. do what I say, punk. Right, which, and, you know, I think is good in some ways, but uh, we definitely suffer from, like, lack of focus on the product side right for sure big time yeah and i think i do think with big projects like this there needs to be a cohesive vision you know that's why directors uh, that's why big movies have a singular director right or sometimes yes. like you know oh two brothers or a small team or like uh, the wachowski siblings that kind of thing right it's whatever it is it's never like there's 15 directors <laughs> let's get this movie made yeah so I, I do think that having that one distinctive um voice can be useful but i don't know just never really the way that we jived because it's hard too because a big part of wanting to be indie is not wanting a boss not wanting to adhere to someone else's vision but i think that also kind of ties into number one right where it's like the core core concept's not set right because one of the reasons that we've had trouble with like the director of a game kind of concept which we've sort of like tried you know like oh Mm -hmm. i'm gonna be the the final say on this this game or whatever and like that sounds all fine and well but like the problem is is that (laughs) neither of us uh really have the core game in our heads completely which you know is hard to do anyway but i feel like we don't even have like sometimes the bare bones representation of the game in our head you know yeah and it makes it hard to be the director when you are prototyping and you know falling all over yourself you know it's hard it's hard Mm -hmm. to be rigid about opinions when you don't even know what your own opinions are yeah um last but not least number four the drive is gone oh this one's probably more indie specific although i don't know one could argue like even if you're on a big studio like a triple a game if your drive is not there you're gonna show up and you're gonna work and you know you're afraid of your boss whipping his his or her whip right but you're not gonna be firing on all cylinders you're not gonna be doing as good of a job as you could right right and I think for us, more recently, it's been like, it's so exhausting right now. Like Soul Thief, it's like wildly uh, gone past its deadline. Uh, the sales have been <clears throat> depressing. <laughs> the um, Like when I go and I look recently, it's like the, the feedback is largely not, not just, you know, mostly negative, but like negative in a way that's like big, right? Where it's like, I, I disagree with this core fundamental decision that you made early on. Or like, I think this whole swath of content is just incorrect. And it's, <laughs> incorrect. it's not like, you know what I mean? It's not just like, oh, hey, you guys should tweak this weapon. Or, you know, this, this thing needs a new graphic. A lot of these 
changes and a lot of these, this feedback and these comments are more like, you know, you guys should bulldoze this entire level or, you know, you guys should revisit the, uh, the twin stick shooter mechanic or something where it's just like, jeez, this game is never going to get done at this rate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it needs more positive signals. So like I have felt each of these four signs, like as I was like, oh, four signs your game is doomed. All right. Well, this is going to suck. And like, when I'm reading the article <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like nodding as I read it. I'm like, oh yeah. Corey you're nodding and yeah. crying at the same time. Yes. <laughs> eating ice cream <laughs> flip-flopping yeah we did that mismanaged team yeah probably drive <laughs> is gone oh man this hurts <laughs> but yeah. there's a there's a part at the end about keeping it together which is good i'm glad they end on a positive note yeah i think it's hard right because games and art and creative stuff like books like <clears throat> they always have this stigma about giving up right Th- those industries i feel like right yeah like oh, you had this creative vision and it didn't go well and so like you abandoned it and now you're a failure. Like that's that's kind of the narrative that is like cliche, uh, I think. Yeah. And I think it's really hard to get away from that because I think one way to look at some situations is like, you know, for example, Soul Thief. And I'm not saying that, you know, we're not going to develop on it anymore or anything. But like, you know, you take those those signals and like you want to like not keep working on something that is going to be not what the market wants. Right. Yeah. And so like, it doesn't have to be like a negative or a bad thing to like lose your motivation for a product. Yeah. And and sometimes it just happens as a natural ebb and flow. You know, you go down, you come up, you go down, you come up. Like we experienced that throughout the game's entire development history. <laughs> it's very true. Right. Like sometimes day by day. Like this is oh, this is terrible. Oh, it's awesome. It's terrible. The best work I've ever done. Oh, it's garbage to beat it all. <laughs> garbage. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I have really mixed feelings about how to feel about some of that stuff, right? Because on one hand, you know, some of the signals that we've received from Soul Thief like make me feel bad, right? Like, oh, you know, we're not doing a good job and like we should really double down and like uh make it better and like you know we'll look like you know frauds or people that don't know what the hell they're doing if we (laughs) if we don't or you know if we eventually abandon the product or whatever you know whatever happens to it down the road like it's hard to get away from that stigma but i've been trying to reframe my thinking about that kind of stuff as more about like business decision right like Mm -hmm. you know here's a product and you know in a big company if you had like a franchise that was not making you money, you'd probably kill it. And you probably that, wouldn't yeah. feel too badly about it. It happens all the time. And, you know, um, stakeholders enjoy that, right? <laughs> They're like, we want you to, like, cut the project and fire people and stop bleeding money, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, that's the kind of thing that's, you know, it's seen as a weakness in some ways because, like, nobody really wants a failure. It's inevitable, but you don't hope for a failure, right? You don't go for a failure. Uh, but when it happens, you know, there is some respect to it, like um, <clears throat> Google killing a product, right? Yeah. Or uh, so often you see people like, you know, we're we're killing this game. Like studios do that uh, all the time. All the time, yeah. Yeah, I think you used an expression uh, that was new to me, throwing good money after bad. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And like, you know, the signals haven't been there for a long time with regards to like, you know, the Kickstarter was abysmal. Like that's a, ba- that's a negative signal and like just something in the back of our minds like, if we can just get to early access and like that hasn't panned out either. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, the, the negative signals, uh, recently are speaking so much louder than the positive signals, which there are some positive there are some, signals. Yeah. yeah. There's some, 
and, and you know obviously like this is the behind the scenes look at our stuff so like, this isn't like a announcement that we're killing the project or anything right? it's an announcement that we're sad <laughs> uh, yeah but see that's what i'm trying to say like i don't you know being sad about a project you spend some time on it is kind of natural but at the same time like you know if we ever get to that point i'm gonna try and internalize it more as like a, yeah well we tried it and you know because the business signs weren't there we had to stop it and we did something else and we learned a lot yeah that's a thing that's always that's always a thing yep oh uh, man anyways so uh but you know most of the podcast listeners don't even like the game anyway <laughs> so they, they'll be like yeah whatever but uh, like the more interesting part of the discussion i think especially for the podcast audience right is like how to handle that situation when it sometimes inevitably comes up yeah i was watching a video i'll put a link in the show notes if i can think of it but uh there's an artist i follow bobby chu i believe it's pronounced chu he runs uh schoolism and he had a video called like uh, I forget. <laughs> I'll put a link. But basically, he said something like this: um, "Is like when you're marching towards success, you will hit these fumbles, right? You'll hit these barriers, and you don't lose enthusiasm. You cross right over them, and eventually, the universe will be like, wow, you know, Bobby's not going to stop. And since Bobby has not stopped, and he's not going to stop, let's let him in. Let's open the door, you know. And he he kept iterating that, you know, emphasis on not losing your enthusiasm." Which, I don't know, that's a difficult thing. Like, we are people, right? We're emotional. We're not just these robots that are like, I like making games 100% of the time, no matter what, <laughs> through poverty <laughs> and through negative reviews. Who cares? Like, you know, you put your creative work out there and it gets, you know, crapped upon. It's, uh, it hurts. I, you feel it. I gotta say, I don't really care for that analogy that... What, keep pushing? Well, not that part specifically, but like the ending part where it's like the universe will just let you do your thing if you try hard enough which i think is kind of a not really the correct way to phrase that like i I understand where he's coming from which is that you know you should keep persevering and eventually you'll get through mm-hmm. but it's not because you know obviously the go- uh, the not the government <laughs> the universe is going to <laughs> just let you do and fulfill your dreams if you work this hard like if you make it they will come right exactly it's yeah not like, necessarily true it's a constant struggle of like it's a struggle to get it started it's a struggle to get it continued it's a struggle to get it done it's a struggle yeah. to market it it's a struggle to maintain it and you know it can seem easy sometimes you know we've had our like moments of time where we're like wow we could do this like in perpetuity yeah uh, perpetuity perpetuity sorry <laughs> uh but you you can't always right like and and it's not Sometimes you can try as hard as you want. I, I guess the thing that I'm I'm trying to like hammer home is that trying hard isn't enough. You wow. have to be smart about how and where you're trying, right? And yeah. so like when I was picturing you talking about this guy's quotes or whatever, like, you know, I'm picturing like what he's saying is like, I'm this unstoppable force and whenever I see a barrier, I just like smash through it and like keep going and you can't stop me and like et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, I, I see it more as like you're running and you hit a barrier and like you go around it, right? And going yeah. around it might mean that you change products or you tweak your game design or you do whatever, right? And then yeah. you run and run, you hit another barrier and then you go around it and, and you might have to make some decisions along the way that are like hard to make, painful to make, um, 
maybe they're easy to make who knows right or maybe yeah. they cost you a bunch of money or, or whatever you know like it's more like that it's more like you're like kind of in this maze of walls you know and like some of them you can smash through but some of them you can't right yeah for sure sometimes and, uh, you gotta pivot yeah sometimes you gotta pivot and, and i think that you know just trying just showing up sadly sometimes not enough although it's a, it's an important part of it right like you can't yeah. You can't finish anything if you're not motivated and trying to do it. Yeah. I, I go back and forth sometimes because, like, you know, <clears throat> if my aspirations were to be a successful professional basketball player, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> right? Like, it would be foolish to be like, no, no, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to work hard every day, and eventually I will be in the NBA. Like, not going to happen. <laughs> I would place a bet on that not happening, you know? And there's other scenarios. Like, when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a film director. That was not going to happen either. It's just too damned competitive and situational and like just not going to be in the cards for me you know it's a lot more likely than you being in the nba though <laughs> exactly yeah well that's the thing i like with you know having a sustainable uh first party driven independent game studio like i know it's possible other people are doing it like all the time they pop up everywhere most of them fail many of them succeed and some of them succeed wildly you know yeah i know that it's possible but i know that it's like you're saying, it is not enough just to work hard every single day. Like for us, a big part of it is, you know, for one, make a really good game for two, be able to market it really well. And we've got like, <laughs> we can barely make a decent game. We don't know much <laughs> about the marketing side at all, you know? So we go to outside help. But, um, but even then it's like, do you have a huge budget? Do you have like a celebrity endorser, like some kind of YouTuber or something like, you know, there's so many tools that we just don't have. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. Um, I think that like you could be in the in the director pool too, right? Like in the same capacity that we're in the game development pool, right? Like you're making little indie films and you've got a shoestring budget and you've got, you know, as much equipment as you can buy and like you're making these short films that aren't summer blockbusters and you're like trying to market them to, you know, independent film lovers and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And uh and, and you either find like a niche that you can exploit that really likes your stuff or you don't. Right, but I, I don't think you know, like you're talking about how you couldn't like all the cards were stacked against you being a director, but they aren't stacked against you in any way that the gaming game dev cards aren't stacked against you too. Yeah, I think that's true, and you know it's the kind of thing where because um, I mean like everybody wants to direct films. It's it's a high paying job. It's it's high profile. It's like you're the person in charge of this really interesting project, and like yeah, I think that you're only looking at like top one percent, right? That's like saying. All yeah. game developers are Edmund McMillan, right? Like, yeah, there there are Steven Spielbergs and there are what's that guy, Peter Jacksons. Sure, sure. And they're making millions and millions of dollars, but most film directors are probably not making very much money. Yeah, but that's the thing is like, I mean, on any level, in from the indie side, if you just want to direct TV, if that's all you want to do, like, I think that the competition is going to be fierce in every single step, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah, I agree. And I think that that's where game development has gone. Yep, is it's so easy now. And the companies are so big and they make so much money. It's like, it's their cool jobs. Everybody wants to do. The competition is just ridiculous, you know? And think about like the shift that's happening in, in all media, right? Like think about Netflix and like how, you know, there are studios that are making content straight to Netflix kind of stuff and how, you know, YouTube is becoming like a channel and there are groups of people that form their own essentially like their own HBO, which is a yeah. collection of shows that yeah. exist almost exclusively perhaps on YouTube, right? Yeah. And so like that industry is also seeing uh, major shifts in how people consume and, 
watch, you know, consume their content um, on the computer or like, you know, um, you know, being able to empathize with like a particular video caster. You know, it's not the same era anymore where it's like they're just these people on TV. You know, sometimes like you have a much closer personal relationship with like the caster or the streamer or whatever. Yeah, that's true. And the same thing I think is happening in game dev circles, right? Like it's uh, some people care a lot about the people behind the game. Yeah. Or the people behind the show or whatever. Yeah, I like that trend because, you know, when we were growing up, it was like mysterious game arrives from Japan made by probably a team of people. Who knows? It's a great game. And you <laughs> have to knows? like, you have to dig later to find out who even made the damn thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, these days, not like that at all. You know, they put the developers front and center. There's like several world famous game designers as opposed to the past where it was like, I don't know, maybe you've heard of Miyamoto, but that's it. <laughs> that's the only one. So yeah, it's definitely improving in that regard. Yeah. But it, like you said, it's just hyper competitive too, right? Like, yeah, so because the processes and tools are so, you know, friction free these days. Comparatively easy as, as compared to where they used to be, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And it'll probably only get easier from here. But yeah, the creative industry is really tough to be in right now. And I think, you know, there's a lot of room for success, but there's also, you know, I think it's kind of like the app stores, right? Like where you have yeah. these layers where like there's a lot of money to be made at the top and there's a whole ton of people that are like outside knocking on the door that want to be in that club. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that portion of people is only growing. For sure. Yeah, and maybe definitely. maybe the top earners are growing too, but maybe not. I don't know for, for sure. That's not what I've been hearing. It's like just, consolidating. Yeah. The, you know, the just a fewer big hit games, they make more money themselves, which yeah. you know, it makes sense. Like people like to be able to talk about the same games. Like, hey, did you play, you know, this hit, in, this hit game? Like, yeah, I played it. Instead of, you know, oh, no, instead of that playing that game, I played these, you know, five other indie games or something. It is, uh, it feels like it's being more consolidated. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about that from like a consumer perspective, right? Like I know that I don't have a lot of room in my life for many TV shows. Yeah. Or even many games sometimes, right? So like I can kind of see where like like part of the reason maybe that you and I like to play HOTS has something to do with the fact that we both play it or that we know other people that play it, you know? For sure, absolutely. That's That was been one of the biggest motivators because like, I, I have no interest in playing League of Legends or anything else, but right. you know, I've got multiple. Like, I can talk to you about HOTS. I can talk to Joshua Moores, my brother. We've got some listeners who play. And there's some people at PAX. Uh, we were talking about HOTS, and it's just fun to talk about. Yeah. And that's a big motivator. Like, okay, hey, I've never played Gazlo. I'll play some Gazlo, and then Gazlo comes up in conversation. And I'm like, there you go. There you go. So it's like you know, people are almost limited in the content they consume to some extent by like their social group yeah in a way yeah that's true but i mean you also have people who are more like oh i want to experience weird niche games or like i really like this particular kind of game so i buy every kind of game it's like this game or whatever right <clears throat> yeah but i think that when you're talking about like you know the top earners like on the app store like that might always be true right just yeah. because of human whatever psychology humans. because of humans yeah yeah because of humans, there's always going to be like a subset of really popular stuff because the mass consumers can only like latch on to a few things at a time. That's true. Yeah. So they've got so much room in your life, you know? Yeah. Anyways, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, once again, game marketing is difficult. Yes. <laughs> game yes, development is. is difficult, yes, et cetera, et cetera. Is. 
Cool. Well, that's all we got for this week. So join us on the forum at forum.lostdecadegames.com. Ship it. I should be surveying my army. This is my army. I am a commander. Nah, it's not working. <laughs>